All right, so tonight is one of those nights where I've got so many rabbits to chase, you'd think it's getting close to Easter. <laughs> and uh, we're the, the, the focal character that we're going to look at on Sunday is the Roman centurion who was at the foot of the cross. But the more I dug into what that really meant, the more I discovered lots and lots of stuff. So the Roman army, anybody remember anything about the Roman army from your history classes? It's one of the most feared fighting machines ever known. Um, a Roman soldier would enlist for 20 years. And at the end of 20 years, uh, they would be given land and uh, uh, citizenship if they didn't have it already. Um, they were stratified, uh, very um, organized. Uh, Roman army at one time had over half a million soldiers. Um, let's see. The legion was made up of 4,000 to 6,000 soldiers. Now, if you've ever watched any old movies about Roman army, you probably heard about the famous Roman 10th Legion. That would have been Julius Caesar's 10th Legion, which disbanded uh, long before Jesus was around. And so the, the 10th Legion that was around when Jesus was um, uh, living was a... Um, a tribute band, so to speak, uh, that was reorganized and given the 10th uh, Legion moniker in order to give homage to the uh, Julius Caesar's 10th Legion. The 10th Legion was based in Syria. So four to 6,000 soldiers based in Syria. No legions were based in Israel, in Palestine. There was a legion based in Egypt, a legion based in Syria. So they had them bracketed, and any time there needed to be um, soldiers uh, brought into the battlefield because something was going on in Palestine, they would do so. As a matter of fact, uh, much later than four decades after Jesus was crucified, uh, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by Romans. 70 AD, the, the temple was destroyed, the city was destroyed, because in about 65, 66 AD, the Jewish um, citizenry organized into their own military units and raised a credible rebellion against Rome. So you remember that when we've talked about Jesus as Messiah, most of the problems that he had with uh, humans, whether the Jewish leaders or his own disciples, was that everybody wanted him to be a military messiah who would kick the Romans out from their occupation of Palestine. Well, half a million in the army, that wasn't going to happen. And when Titus needed to bring in a few reinforcements to quell the Jewish rebellion, he brought in as many as 60,000 soldiers, but on a normal 
time, which was kind of what Jesus's time was. I know that we feel like there was a lot of unrest because that's what we read in the scripture. Uh, there was it was really a a pretty peaceful time, and so there were likely not more than uh, three to four thousand Roman soldiers at the most. And they were all based at Caesarea Maritime, which is on the Mediterranean coast, west of north and west of Jerusalem. So what was this guy even doing in Jerusalem? Why were there any Roman soldiers in Jerusalem? Anybody know the answer? Hmm? Yes. But to guard the peace, a lot of rebellions. <clears throat> well, there there were minor rebellions, and there was there were major rebellions uh, both before and after Jesus. But Jesus's time was relative peace. That's why the the Roman leaders, the Roman uh, the Jewish leaders, were so interested in making sure Pilate signed off on everything that happened, is because they were they they. If the peace was intact, their power was intact. If the peace was disrupted, their power was disrupted. And so you're exactly right. Pilate was only in Jerusalem because it was Passover. And anytime there was a large crowd, think of of Mardi Gras in New Orleans or the All-Star, the NBA All-Star game that that it just puts uh, tens of thousands uh, in, in New Orleans, it puts half a million extra people in town when Mardi Gras is happening. And so, yeah, New Orleans, they beef up the police force. The state patrol comes in. The National Guard comes in and, and they call in extra people. Well, the Passover was a big, big event and uh, Pilate was not one to miss a party. And so he made sure that when there was a Passover uh, yearly annual Passover, Pilate would have been in in governance in Jerusalem, not in his normal place. Now, when we go to Israel, we will see a, a stone at Caesarea Philippi that identifies the ruins that we're looking as the, the palace of Pilate. Uh, he would have built a, a, a home on the See the Mediterranean Sea there on the west coast of Israel and um, enjoyed the breezes off the ocean and only gone to Jerusalem when he had to. So that's what the army was doing there. But uh, a legion um, was 4,000 to 6,000. Legions were led by a legate who was usually a senator or a governor. So a politician soldier, and he would have worked his way up to legate, maybe even from Centurion. The legions were made up of 10 groups of soldiers called cohorts. And the cohorts were divided into groups of 80 to 100 called centuries. So a centurion was the leader of a cohort. Um, a leader of a century, which was one of 10 of those in a cohort, and then the cohorts made up legions. 
And so it was incredibly well organized, uh, incredibly efficient, and incredibly cool. Uh, the Roman, uh, even, even among the army, discipline was by violence. Uh, a, a crucifixion was reserved for criminals, Christians, or Roman soldiers who deserted. Uh, otherwise, a Roman citizen was exempt from crucifixion. And so uh, the average soldier wore 90 pounds of weight. The um, the centurion usually worked their way up the ranks. So a centurion wasn't a new convert. It wasn't like today when when you, when a uh, a young man or woman can go to college and graduate as a second lieutenant. Uh, a an enlisted man. Uh, I, I had a a pay scale here somewhere uh, that was uh, pretty interesting because the the pay difference between an enlisted man and a uh, a centurion was was drastic. It was tenfold or more, and so the. The fact that there was a centurion at the foot of the cross, it's intriguing that he was there. So that's the end, and now I'm going to work my way backwards. You remember that we left off in uh, Mark, we'll just use Mark's version of it. In Mark 15, verse 16, from uh, an order to be scourged by Pilate, the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That would have been Herod's palace there in Jerusalem. Mark chapter 15, verse 16. Then they mocked him. So these would have been Roman soldiers. My guess, if if this guy was in charge of 80 soldiers... That's probably about all they had in Jerusalem. I doubt if they had all the the entire cohort or the entire uh, century. I I doubt if they were probably the century or or two or three centuries were in Jerusalem, but they wouldn't have had the entire cohort there uh, during Passover. It It didn't take too many Roman soldiers to take care of business. And so... All of the places in scripture where we see Roman soldiers, it is likely that our friend at the cross was the one who was in charge of them. Now, it's unlikely that he did any of these things because he would have been uh, much more focused on leading his men. Uh, And so in 16, the soldiers led him away. Um, They called together the whole battalion. So that would likely have been the the century. There would have been 80 to 100. Um, So there's all of these soldiers in one place, an impressive show of force. They begin to mock him and salute him and beat him and uh, put a, a crown of thorns on his head. Verse 21, they uh, led him to crucify him. Now, You've heard this said before that the the point of crucifixion was humiliation. It was to serve as a deterrent. So the 
the vertical post for the cross would have been permanent. It, it would have been in the ground permanently, likely. All of the dramas you've heard where they nailed him to the cross and they set it up and they dropped in a hole, probably not. Likely this, this when it says they made him carry his cross, he would have carried the horizontal beam, the patabellum, which would have been put across his neck with his hands roped over the top of it to walk through the streets. So you may have seen that depiction in some of the movies or whatever. That that would have been much more accurate. Then at the spot of crucifixion, they would have laid him on his back and nailed his wrists to the horizontal beam. And then with ropes, they would have lifted him up to a notch or a, or a small shelf where the cross beam would sit on the uh, the vertical, and then they would have nailed his feet to the vertical. I don't mean to be clinical with that, but he had already been scourged with a, a cat of nine tails that's one of the most evil-looking things you've ever seen, uh, uh, small pieces of bone, uh, tied into leather strips. The Jews would not lash more than 39 times because 40 was considered to be fatal. The Romans had no such limitations. They didn't care if it was fatal or not. They they didn't have any any real problem if he died before he got to the cross. And so he was dehydrated. He was, um, blood loss was enormous. His back was shredded when they put him on the wooden um, horizontal beam. It would have been excruciating, every nerve exposed. And so I, I say all that to say that that wouldn't have phased this centurion. He'd seen hundreds of them. This guy <clears throat> rose through the ranks. It, it wouldn't have phased him whatsoever. That life was cheap. Uh, life, uh, a Jewish prophet was barely registered as a life form with a Roman. And so the, the slavery and the, uh, the violence by which they ruled. So the centurion, uh, while he was probably not as crass as his soldiers were, he, the, these were enlisted men, and his job was to make sure they didn't get out of hand, make sure that they didn't do anything that was uh, that was um, that would break uh, discipline. Uh, he didn't really care about uh, what happened to the victim, although Pilate said he wanted him crucified, and so likely the centurion would have said, "Let's get him on the cross alive," because that's. That's the orders. So Jesus is not nearly as high off the ground as what the movies depict. The whole purpose was humiliation. Um, this, they wouldn't have crucified inside the city. It would have been outside the city, and it would have been on a major road. 
probably the Damascus Road. Um, in, inside the city of Jerusalem, one of the northernmost gates is the Damascus Gate. And in the Damascus Gate, that leads out to the Damascus Road, which obviously goes to Damascus. Um, and, and so they, they, in today's terms, they, they would crucify at a bus station or at a public square, somewhere where there was a lot of traffic, because the point was deterrence. So this Roman soldier is watching all of that. And now that brings us to the cross. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. Mark tells us he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. That means that these were two men who were known to the to the early church. Remember that that Mark's gospel was probably written two to three decades after all this happened. And so uh, the the Mark is looking back on all of this. Alexander and Rufus were apparently known because he names them. They brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. I had a, a bit of a revelation today when I was studying, and it doesn't happen often. But when you go to Jerusalem and you go into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is a church that's been built over the top of both Golgotha and the place of the tomb. These two things aren't more than 100 yards apart. So when he went from the cross to the tomb, the proximity of those is very, very close. And it made me start thinking that if we're trying to tell the story of Jesus, we can't tell the story of the cross without the tomb, and we can't tell the story of the tomb without the cross. That, that the suffering and the obedience, as Paul said in, Rome, in Philippians chapter 2, uh, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So the the, the the fact that Jesus went to the cross willingly was to show us that humans can be obedient, that humans can honor all the ways, all the words, all the uh, the the will of God that that a human can. That's 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 Jesus in his humanity. The cross was about him being the Son of Man. The tomb was about him being the Son of God, and uh, I. I as as I studied more and more, I couldn't help but bring these two together that to study the cross as it leads to the tomb, the Roman centurion is standing right in the in the hands, isn't he? So he's crucified. Uh the uh scripture tells us that uh they crucified in verse 27 with two robbers. Those who passed by derided him. They, they were almost eye level, right? He, he wasn't a foot or two off the ground because part of the crucifixion was the humiliation. And so it says they passed by, they derided him, they wagged their heads. They said, aha, which is an Aramaic phrase of, of ridicule. 
And then they quoted him from uh, chapter 14. You you said you'd destroy this temple and rebuild it in uh, three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. I think some of that was sincere. They wanted to see a miracle. Let's, let's sit. Let's, hey, how cool would that be? Angels show up, get this guy off the cross. He saved others. Let him save himself. Let Christ, the King of the Jews, the King of Israel, come down so that we may see and believe. While I believe they mocked, I believe there was something inside all of them. They go, I'd believe if I could see a miracle. And the reason I think that's a possibility is because that's just like us. We all go, well, if I saw all those miracles, I'd believe. Well, maybe. So... One writer said this, and I wrote it in my Bible. It was not the nails that held him to the cross. It was the love of God that constrained. And the Bible goes on to say that when the sixth hour had come, sixth hour would have been noon, uh, darkness fell, um, the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, here's the rabbit I'd love to chase, but I don't have time. He's quoting <laughs> Psalm 22. And he's quoting uh, the Davidic Psalm. And the flow of the Davidic Psalm in 22 goes from suffering to the Gentiles' worship, to the kingdom of God, to resurrection, to a proclamation to God's people. And if you follow all the rest of the Gospel of Mark, it follows that pattern. The suffering is the crucifixion. The Gentiles' worship is the confession of the centurion. Uh, The kingdom of God, over in verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, Uh, was himself looking for the kingdom of God. So there is a parallel between Psalm 22 and uh, Mark 15 and 16 that's unmistakable. So here we get to our our character. Someone, uh, uh, bystanders heard him say that, and they said he's calling for Elijah. Why would he call for Elijah? Yeah, Elijah didn't die. So Elijah and his chariot of fire could take him uh, to heaven. And what He's calling for Elijah. Come get me, Elijah. End this suffering. Come get me. Another person made the observation that Mark's gospel starts with John the Baptist dressed like Elijah. And now we're ending with... Um, Jesus calling for him, but he didn't call for him at all. As someone ran and offered him sour wine, he refused it. Hey, wait, let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathes his last. So the last word that we have from Jesus in Mark's gospel is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are six other sayings. Did anybody know any of them? It is finished. finished. Forgive them, they know not. Forgive them, they don't know what they do. I thirst. I thirst. 
tells John, this is your mother. John, behold your mother. Yeah. Mary, behold your son. Uh, it's not one of the seven, but um, the other one was, uh, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Why would I talk about the sayings on the cross? Because that centurion heard all of them. Matthew and uh, Mark and Luke, actually, all three mention the centurion, but he was required by law to be there until Jesus died. So the the Roman officer could not leave until all of these uh, victims, crucifixion, uh, executionees, uh, criminals, he would not leave until they were all dead because that was the order. And so he was close enough to Jesus who didn't say anything on the cross except these seven statements. Unlike the other uh, crucified criminals who were shouting curses and, and crying out in pain and, and calling anybody and everybody to try to do something, begging for mercy, this, this Roman soldier who had invested his whole life keeping the peace. He watched the dignity and the grace and the, just the aura in which Jesus died. And all of a sudden, this crucifixion wasn't the same as all of the rest of them that he'd experienced. One question. Yeah. Um, was this the centurion that actually believed that he was the Messiah? Mm -hmm. That he went to Jesus? Was this the one that went to Jesus says, yeah, I got a servant that's... No. We don't think so. We don't have any reason to believe that. Now, uh, certainly there weren't so many centurions that that story would not have been repeated. I, I don't have any... I, I don't have a reason to believe this guy didn't know that story. But we don't have any way of knowing or any reason to believe that it was the same guy. Um, but to your point, that would have indicated that there were at least two centuries in Jerusalem. Um, I would imagine they left a couple of them in Jerusalem all the time. The pilot sent this centurion, the yeah. one that watched this Jesus one. on the cross. And also when they rolled that stone to and sealed the tomb... He was there. That was the same centurion. We it? don't know. Um, we're not sure that there were Roman soldiers at the tomb. Uh, we know that Pilate sealed it, and likely this soldier or, or another trusted soldier would have been there to seal the tomb. We don't have knowledge of the Romans being the one who were guarding the tomb. I believe those might have been temple guards, uh, Jewish temple guards, but that's just a guess. Um, and I became more convinced of that in studying the discipline of the Roman army. Um, the idea that a Roman soldier would go to a Jewish leader and say, I fell asleep is, is pretty improbable. So, here we go. Jesus uttered a loud cry, verse 37, 
he breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, this is one of those details where you've got to remember that Mark wrote this much later than it happened. The, the people of the cross would have had no way of knowing that. You could you were nowhere near the temple when you were outside the city. Uh, the temple would have been on the temple mount, and Golgotha would be a long way, well, not in our terms a long way, but but it would have been a, enough of a distance where the Roman centurion would not have had that knowledge. Uh, he, he would have, he, he would have observed that it was dark. Uh, he would have, Matthew's version says the earth shook and the, the bodies came forth from the tombs. Uh, that, that, that would have been, um, unknown to the soldier. He may have felt the earthquake. Certainly Mark tells us that he knew that it was dark, but the, uh, the detail that Mark added later was to let us see what was going on there theologically, that the temple almost certainly, this curtain refers to the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the, uh, the rest of the temple, a place where only the priest could access and only once a year. And the fact that the temple curtain tore from top to bottom it implied that now people could get in and God could get out. And it it talked of the access that Jesus' death allowed for us and all who would believe in the future. So then back to the Roman centurion, and here's kind of the, the, the conclusion. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in the way he died. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. And the son of God, the phrase is not a Roman phrase. He was the son of one of the gods. It's, it is a definite reference to the Jewish um, notion or the, uh, what Jesus had been talking about. Uh, th this was a definite uh, statement of faith by a Gentile at the foot of the cross, a man who under the penalty of death believed that Caesar was a god, was God, uh, that the, the emperor was God, that, uh, and so disregarding what would happen to him, disregarding what uh, decorum would suggest disregarding what 80 men would hear in his presence he became the first ever recorded to exclaim that Jesus was the son of God now Sunday we'll talk much more about the tomb and it's a certainty that this Roman soldier now interested would have known about the tomb just three days later. It was the, it was all the rage, right? It was all the buzz. It was the the stories that were concocted, the the theories that 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 went on for twenty centuries after this, that suggested that Jesus just passed out on the cross. He didn't really die. That the disciples stole his body. That he had an identical twin, and on and on they go. 
but this soldier would not have left post if Jesus wasn't dead. He was with Jesus from the time they left the praetorium until the time that Joseph of Arimathea claimed his body. And so when we talk about the empty tomb, the this guy has already made a declaration that he's the son of God. And it would not have been much of a leap when he heard about the resurrection to go, yeah, it's exactly what he was. The king of the Jews, the sign that was over his head, didn't do justice to what he really was. He wasn't the king of the Jews. He was the king of kings. He was the Lord of lords. So when the Roman centurion uh, made his declaration, um, it wouldn't surprise me if he was dispatched to the tomb as well. So where does that leave us? Again, I don't think we can understand had, had Jesus died on the cross and the tomb not followed, then he would have been another Jew crucified in Palestine. Had the empty tomb happened after Jesus died a natural death or after he was attacked, without him willingly going to the cross to suffer and die for our sins, then the tomb, the empty tomb wouldn't have made sense. And so the Roman soldier stands at the hinge of the cross and the tomb. And his story, his declaration is for all of us. Paul would later say in Romans chapter 10, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And the collision of sin and justice, uh, evil and good, uh, vindication and justification, God's judgment and God's mercy, all of those hinge right there between the cross and the tomb. All right, John, we've got one more experience of a God, don't we? Yeah, we do. We'll never experience God again. <laughs> That's one, that'll be one of our questions tonight. So uh, uh, as, we, as we get ready to talk about um, <clears throat> our last of experiencing God, what, what, did we, what did you just notice as we, as we read this? Um, what stands out with the story of the centurion experience? Well, he had his own experience with God, hundreds and hundreds of these, and something stood out and was so different that, of all things, at the penalty possibly of his own life, he said, this is the Son of God. Yeah. So just shows how special and personal that is. I think it was important that he was not, he was not, he was a Gentile. He was not Jewish. He didn't, he didn't have all of that background and probably didn't know the the prophecies and all that, um, so that he came to that declaration and realization not based on any training that he had. Yeah. So I'm wondering if the centurion, I mean, he, he probably seen thousands of crucifixions, 
And in Jesus, in this one instance, he probably sees something different about this one person from the time he was taken prisoner to that long march all the way to the cross. And all the while, he says he's acting different than everybody else who's ever done this. And you take that and then the darkness and then the ground shakes and all that other stuff. That's going to cause someone to at least go, huh. Something different about this man. <clears throat> I, it, it's, it's, it seems to be that uh, as they went through the process of crucifixion, <clears throat> my assumption is that the people weren't just silent as they went through this process, right? They probably lashed back, spoke out. Most, at, most criminals, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. definitely. <clears throat> lashed out at the people doing these things to him. I mean, I just, I'm just amazed as, as Alan was talking tonight, just thinking through even in his death, right? I, 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 it's just, it's made me view, view it a little different tonight, that even in that, he uh, demonstrated just mercy, love. Well, on the cross, he said, father, the, 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 the Roman centurion who was used to being begged for mercy, he heard the criminal offer him mercy. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And that is a shake. Yeah. He, he was being forgiven when he was used to all these people asking him for mercy. And, you know, the, the end of the day, Jesus died before they could break his legs. And the way that crucifixion killed a person it was not blood loss, although that was part of it. It wasn't dehydration. It was asphyxiation in that they could no longer support their lungs collapsing on themselves. And they would push up with their feet, as painful as that was with a nail through their ankles. They would push up with their feet to try to get their lungs up to where they could get breath. And if they, since at the end of the day, they needed to get all these criminals off the cross by the end of the day before Sabbath, uh, if they weren't dead, they took a big mallet and broke the shin bones where they could no longer push up. But since the prophecy said that not a bone would be broken, Jesus died before that could happen. I, I don't know about the other two criminals, but it was common for the centurion to give the order and a huge wooden hammer slammed across the shin bones so that they could no longer push up to get any air. It, it, it's excruciating. Yeah. Back in my former life, <clears throat> being a worship leader for many, many years, um, one of those times we did a big passion play and um we had talked to other churches about the plays that they had done, and a big church in Louisville uh, gave us uh, a bunch of their songs, a bunch of, we just paid for the rights to be able to use them. One of the songs was called, Could You Be Messiah? And it was sung by the centurion standing at the cross singing, um, Could You Be Messiah to Me? Like he was just talking about his life, everything he experienced through this crucifixion. 
looking at Jesus, you know, could you be the Messiah? And then at the end, he says, please, would you be Messiah for me? And it, it, again, we, we don't read that in scripture, but we do know that he said, truly, this was son of God. Just an amazing thing being transformed, how his life was transformed. We'll get to talk about that Sunday, hear about that Sunday. So it'll be great. And our lives have been transformed, right? Before we leave the centurion, you know, the way Blackaby has taught us to recognize God's will. He said prayer, uh, scripture, circumstances, the church. And if you think about the centurion, he heard prayer. He heard scripture. He was obviously changed by the circumstances of Jesus's death. And I don't know how close he was to John or Mary, you know, obviously close enough to where Jesus could nod at John and say, behold, your mother and to Mary and say, behold, your son. So there was he he obviously had a lot of the elements that Blackaby identifies which lead to his declaration and his discovery of the will of God. Mm-hmm. 